Well, our scripture reading for this morning is from Acts 21, 7 through 14. If you're following along in your pew Bible, that's on page 930. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible home with you as a gift from us. Let's read the word of the Lord together. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Taylor. Well, good morning and welcome uh, again. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and I get the chance this morning to unpack this passage with you a little bit. And as we prepare to do that, uh, it's part of what we do each week is uh, spend our, our time centered around a passage of Scripture. I'd love to pray and ask that God would be at work in our lives, speaking to us afresh uh, through this text of Scripture this morning. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have inspired your word, that you have preserved your word for us, and that you continue uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit to speak to us through your word even today, uh, that it is living and active. I pray that we would be receptive to it um, now as we uh, think about it closely together. And we ask this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't remember exactly how it began. Maybe it was watching uh, The Guns of Navarone or The Great Escape with my dad growing up. We watched a lot of those old World War II movies. But it's hard for me to remember a time when I wasn't fascinated as a kid by World War II history. Uh, When I was young, I I think I checked out and rechecked out every book that our little public library had in the juvenile section on World War II. Those books made a constant kind of circulation through our home. And Later on in high school and college, I became fascinated with Winston Churchill as a, as a leader, as well as an orator. And so when I heard that Gary Oldman would be starring as Churchill in the film The Finest Hour, I knew it would be a must-see for me. Uh, and it did not disappoint. Uh, if you know this period of history, Churchill had stepped in to be prime minister with Britain on the brink of being invaded by Hitler's Germany. And he inspired his fellow British citizens with these words. He says, The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us on in this island or lose the war. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Churchill contended that that this perilous moment, this moment of incredible opposition and danger, would perhaps be remembered as the finest hour in Great Britain's history. There's something about 
opposition, about hostility, about um, trials and hardships that have the ability on the one hand to, to break us, to discourage us, to, to crush us, but also they have the capacity to bring out the best in us as people. They have the, the capacity to produce endurance and character And often we view hardships and trials, physical danger, opposition, hostility as things to be avoided at all costs. I know I I tend to go that direction. But what if those moments, what if those moments, especially for Christians, were allowed to enter our lives by God, not simply as obstacles, but as opportunities what if God allowed those into our lives that they actually might be our finest hours? This morning we're taking a turn or turning a corner in the book of Acts. Uh, the book began, uh, we started looking at this all the way back in January of this year. The book begins in Jerusalem. And Jesus had died, had risen from the dead, and there in Jerusalem, Peter becomes a central leading figure in the church. But just as Jesus had predicted and commanded, the church begins to expand outward from Jerusalem into first Judea and Samaria. And then uh, we meet the person who becomes the Apostle Paul, and as he begins to take the gospel in all ways to the ends of the earth. And these final eight chapters of the book, Luke is showing us how Paul will face incredible challenges as he will travel all the way to Rome, which from a Jerusalem-centric picture of the world, Rome was the ends of the earth. But Paul's journey to Rome begins by facing opposition in Jerusalem. And so this morning, as we walk through this, I want to first tell you the story sort of in three acts of Paul's journey to Jerusalem and then what happens to him once he gets there. And then after we've walked through that story, then I just want to pause and and ask the question, why does this matter for you? Why does this matter for me? Why is this account in our Bibles? So first, the story in three acts. The first act I call the warning, or you could call it, don't do it, Paul. So last week, we left Paul on the beaches of Miletus, which is a sound near the city of Ephesus, where Paul had spent two years planting a church, investing in leaders, pouring into them. He spends these years at Ephesus, and then Acts chapter 21 opens, and and Luke paints this picture of these final embraces, these tearful goodbyes, knowing that, that he probably will never see these people again on earth. And Paul and Luke and others, they tear themselves away from the Ephesian leaders and they board a ship crossing the Mediterranean Sea to the city of Tyre. You can see that on the map. So they journey over to Tyre there, just above, you see that says Palestine. And they arrive in the city of Tyre. And when they arrive in Tyre, they immediately find the Christian community, this little fledgling community of followers of Jesus there in Tyre. And they go and they, they receive hospitality from them. But also, as Paul is with them, he receives a somber warning as well. Verse 4, it's such a fascinating verse. It says, We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. The believers, the Christians in the city of Tyre, tell Paul not to do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. 
They give him a warning. The very place that, that he was determined to go, they say, don't do it, Paul. And, and what's fascinating here is it isn't just sort of a sense that they say kind of on their own idea that they, he shouldn't do this. It says that through the Spirit, they tell Paul not to go. Now, does this mean that, that God is telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem? Is, is Paul disobedient when in the very next verses he boards a ship and continues heading for Jerusalem? And if we, the story stopped at verse 6, you'd almost have to come to that conclusion that this is what's going on. But when you're reading the Bible, especially when you're reading biblical narrative, it's really important to interpret the parts of the story, the individual pieces of the narrative, ultimately in light of the whole account that the author is painting. And so Luke is building tension with some ambiguity here in the story. What's happening? Is Paul really supposed to go? What's going to happen with him? We have to continue on in the story to find out how it resolves. And so this time he sets sail from Tyre down to Ptolemais, and then he's on to Caesarea. And, and also let me just pause here. In this turn that we're making at chapter 21 to these last eight chapters of the book, as you're reading through these, as we study these in the last few weeks of our series in Acts, you're going to notice two, two T's that come up a lot in this uh, section of Acts. Travel, a lot of the last, chapter, uh, last chapters of Acts are just narrations of Luke's travels with Paul to Rome, ultimately. And trial. Paul, we're going to watch, witness him be standing trial in front of different courts and rulers and throughout these chapters. So basically these last chapter, chapters of the book are made up of trials and travels. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves there. So Paul arrives in Caesarea. This is now his third little jaunt from Miletus. And Paul, again, just like he did in Tyre, he meets with the believers who are there in Caesarea meets the followers of Jesus who are in that city. And again, they plead with him in Caesarea, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But they actually get a little bit more creative with their plea uh, than the folks did in Tyre. Um, the believers back in Tyre simply told Paul, Paul, don't, don't go. Uh, but the folks in Caesarea, they, they take it to the next level. Um, they do a little kind of performance art for, for Paul to help him get the picture. So maybe, maybe Paul has a different learning style. I think maybe we'll do a little performance art. Maybe that'll get through to him. And so this guy comes up to Paul, takes his belt off, and then ties his own hands and feet with Paul's belt. And he says, Paul, do you see me laying here on the ground, tied up on the floor? This is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. I don't know how I can make this any more clear. <laughs> this is what is going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 10. While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to you, Paul. If you keep doing this, this is, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be arrested. The Holy Spirit says so twice now. And, and because they love Paul, because they don't want to see him harmed, the believers plead with him, Paul, don't go. But listen to how Paul responds in verse 13. We heard it 
read for us earlier. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And this is where we begin to see things come into focus. The believers in the city of Tyre, the believers in the city of Caesarea, they have been given an understanding, a true and right understanding from the Holy Spirit of what will happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem, that he will be arrested there. And they make the understandable assumption then that, well, Paul, you ought not to go there. But Paul says, look, God is calling me to go to Jerusalem And I'm ready to face opposition there. I'm ready to face even death there if I must. The Lord's will be done. And so Paul goes on to Jerusalem. Just as as he had in the city of Tyre, just as he did in Caesarea, once he gets to Jerusalem, he finds the church leaders there. He begins to meet with them, encourages them, um, helps to, to build the cause of the gospel and strengthen the church in Jerusalem. And Paul even takes care, Luke walks us through this, we don't have time to go through all the details of it this morning, but he takes great care to navigate the complexities involved in communicating the good news about Jesus in a context in Jerusalem where you have lots of Jews and also lots of Gentiles, and where the idea of Jews and Gentiles coming together, this has been one of the big themes throughout the book of Acts, is so controversial in this early culture, and people don't understand how this is supposed to work, and and non-Christian Jews are particularly angry and skeptical that, that Jews would now associate together with Gentiles. But for all of Paul's care in this regard, non-Christian Jews in the city stir up opposition and violence against him, which leads us to Act 2, which I call the arrest, or Paul, we told you so. Now again, you have to understand that this Jesus movement is doing something radical. It was birthed out of the Jewish faith, the Jewish story, But now, in fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament, the Gentiles are being included. But again, at this time, Jews and Gentiles didn't associate with one another. The whole Jewish identity was wrapped up in being being separated and distinct from Gentiles. And then you have Paul in Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, the home of the Jewish temple. And he's constantly interacting with Gentiles. And he's been there for a while. Lots of people in Jerusalem have seen Paul hanging out with, spending time with Gentiles. And then one day they see Paul in the temple. And they just lose it. They say, this is the guy who's teaching everyone everywhere to ignore the law of Israel. And what's more, he's brought a Gentile into the temple. He's bringing Gentiles into the temple. Which, by the way, Paul had not done. It's a false accusation, but it didn't matter at that point. The crowd begins to to swarm and and a mob begins to form. The whole city, Luke says, is stirred up and people rush together and they drag Paul out of the temple and they're they're trying to kill him. But again, this is kind of a, a small riot beginning to happen around the temple and so someone calls the police. And when the sort of Roman riot police arrive, the soldiers actually arrest Paul instead. Um, 
and they, they take him into custody. They arrest the guy being beaten up rather than those beating him. Uh, and, and as Paul is sort of doing the perp walk into the, the Roman barracks there, the guy says to him, now, Paul, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 men into the wilderness? This is who they think he is. It's a case of a mistaken identity all around. And, and Paul says, uh, no, not him. Uh, I'm actually a Jewish guy from Tarsus. Uh, and then Paul asks the commander, he says, can I speak to the people? It's kind of like, you mean the ones who were just trying to kill you? Yeah, I'd love to. Could I, could I address that crowd? And the commander says, well, I guess, if you want, yes. And so then Paul stands up in front of this crowd that was just beating him, just trying to kill him, and he, and he shares his faith story. He gives this testimony. He talks about coming to know Jesus uh, on the Damascus Road, how he went from someone who was trying to destroy the church and, and, and put an end to it, to now he's one of the people who is, is its most ardent supporter and trying to bring it to the ends of the earth. And he, he tells this whole story. There's multiple times in the book of Acts where Paul tells the story. But it all falls on deaf ears. Verse 22, I love how Eugene Peterson captures this verse in the message. Verse 22, the people in the crowd had listened attentively up to this point. But now they broke loose, shouting, kill him, he's an insect, stomp on him. They shook their fists, and they filled the air with curses. Which leads us to Act 3, which I call The Twist or why you should always pack your passport. And the crowd is once again in an uproar, or another riot is beginning, and so the Roman commanders order Paul taken to the barracks, and you might think, oh good, they're, they're going to protect Paul from the crowd that's trying to kill him. Uh, not, not quite, though, um, in an odd sort of case of blame the victim, the commander gives orders for Paul to be flogged and beaten by the Roman soldiers to find out why he's causing so much trouble for them. But here comes the twist. So they have Paul stretched out, ready to be beaten. The soldiers there twirling the whip, ready to go. And just as he's about to strike, listen to verse 26, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? That's why you bring your passport. So the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I thought that I bought the citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who are about to examine him, really the idea is to torture him, withdrew from him immediately. And the Roman tribune was afraid, for he had realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So Paul holds off on revealing this twist to the very last moment, this twist that he is also a Roman citizen. And I, I wondered this week, why did he wait so long? I mean, literally, he's stretched out. They're like seconds away from beating him. And I think there are a couple reasons why Paul waited this long. First, uh, I think it would have made matters worse with the, with the Jews. So the Jews are already angry at him for interacting with Gentiles. They're accusing him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. If he's in the midst of that crowd and, and all of a sudden he, he started to claim his Roman citizenship, that only what Ben Witherington, the scholar on Acts, says mentioning his Roman citizenship would have simply amounted to pouring gas on an already raging fire at that moment. 
And second, though, I think for Paul, his Roman citizenship was far from his fundamental identity. He was a Christian first, identified as a Jewish man second, um, and even clear, he, he mentions his, his citizenship in the city of Tarsus uh, to the soldier before he mentions his Roman citizenship. It just wasn't the top way in which he identified. And so, ultimately, because he's a Roman citizen, instead of being beaten, Paul is locked up in a Roman barracks, just as the Holy Spirit promised that he would be if he went to Jerusalem. But this is the point where we come to say, okay, that's, you know, that's an interesting story uh, about Paul and what happened to him, but, but what does this have to do with us? Why is this uh, account in your Bible, why does Luke include this account in his story of the early church? And I think what we have in this passage, why I think Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit as he's writing, includes this in our Bibles, is because it's a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. It's a picture of discipleship, a picture of what it looks like to follow and obey Jesus in life. You see, for the Apostle Paul, the inevitable opposition that the gospel brought as he sought to strengthen the church is not only a barrier, it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. It's an opportunity to grow in faithfulness and obedience. Could it be that opposition is not just a barrier to be avoided, but is an opportunity for us to grow in our following of Jesus? I just want to look at three things here as we reflect on this story. First, that opposition is an opportunity for discernment. It's an opportunity for discernment. What do I mean by that? I, I think there are, our, our default view is often to view opposition as a sign uh, that we should go a different direction, that something's wrong, we should change course. But the picture we get in Acts is so different than that, especially here in Acts chapter 21. Again, Paul is told explicitly twice by members of the church through the Holy Spirit that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be arrested and imprisoned. And again, those church leaders rightly interpret that as, uh, or I should say understandably interpret that as a sign that, Paul, you shouldn't go. <laughs> they don't want him to go. They care about him. They don't want him to be put into prison. So if the Spirit's revealing that, Paul, if you go here, you're going to get arrested, they, their natural reaction is to say, Paul, don't do it. But Paul is convinced he must go to Jerusalem, that it's God's will for him to go to Jerusalem, even if that means being arrested, imprisoned, even killed. Which means that opposition, it's an opportunity for discernment. Opposition, when it comes, is, it, it, we don't automatically just know what it means. It's, just a, a, it's a fact that happens in our lives at times. But in and of itself, opposition doesn't tell us that what we're doing, the path we're taking, is right or wrong. It requires discernment. If you're faithfully trying to follow God at, at school or in your workplace, and you begin to encounter opposition, that might be a sign you're actually doing something right. But, but other times, opposition uh, might be a sign that we need to go in a different direction. We've seen that in Acts as well. There's times when Paul goes into a particular city or a place or with a group of people, and he's beginning to, to tell the good news about Jesus, and there's a strong rejection of it, and then he, he moves on and he heads in a different direction. So when you begin to face opposition in your life, 
don't just view it automatically as an obstacle. View it as an opportunity for discernment. Ask, how is God at work in the midst of this? What is God trying to show me in this? What is He trying to teach me in the midst of this? And remember that opposition is regularly a part of God's will for our lives in this world. It's abundantly clear with Paul. It's possible, even probable, that God will call you at times to do something difficult, something incredibly costly, something so costly, in fact, that your closest friends, your, your family, your parents may say, don't do it. It's too hard. It's too dangerous. It's too risky. And you should listen to those voices in your life. But you should also know that sometimes God still calls you to those difficult places, those hard things anyway. Opportunity, opposition, it's an opportunity for discernment. It's also an opportunity for surrender. Opposition's also an opportunity for surrender. Um, perhaps an opportunity to surrender for the first time, to surrender your life to what God is doing in there. Or perhaps you've been following Jesus for a long time and it's an opportunity to, in a fresh or a new ways or in deeper ways, surrender your life to His plan, to His will. Opposition uniquely puts us in a place of dependence on God and trust in His will, even when that will takes us to a place that we don't understand and would not have chosen on our own. Opposition is an opportunity for surrender, to surrender our plans and our lives to God's plan. I mean, He's the one who has purchased us with a price. We belong to Him. Opposition is an opportunity to even understand, have I just been following Jesus because it's comfortable or because it's real? Moments of opposition test that for us. In moments of opposition, struggle, hardship, testing, trial, we have the opportunity to surrender, to truly surrender ourselves to God and His purposes above our own, to His preferences above our own. Luke, who composed the book of Acts, uh, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, he records Jesus' words that invite us to a life of surrender. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and Jesus said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Opposition is an opportunity for surrender. I remember being in a room uh, with a dear friend who had recently found out that his child had been diagnosed with an incurable disease. And I'll never forget what he said that day as we talked about that moment. He said, I wonder if, if today I really became a Christian because I've never had to trust God like this before. The opposition puts us in a place where trust has to become real puts us in a place where, where it cannot just be a theory or, or a feeling, but is a reality in our lives. Opposition is an opportunity to surrender, an opportunity to say, Lord, your will be done. It's an opportunity to say and to demonstrate with our lives to the world that I believe in the goodness and providence and care and mercy of the living and resurrected Jesus, even in the face of suffering and pain and confusion and hardship that I may not ever understand. 
opposition. It's an opportunity for discernment, for surrender, and finally, it's an opportunity for courage. One of the things I'm most struck by in this passage, as well as in Paul's life more broadly, is his great courage in the face of, uh, in particular, great courage in the face of threats to his physical safety, even to his life. Um, one virtue that I've kind of been cultivating my own life this year, as I sat down and did some planning way back in, in January, is the, is the virtue of fortitude or courage. And C.S. Lewis talks about fortitude as one of the, the classical virtues. And he, he says probably the best way to talk, we don't use that language of fortitude often, he says probably the best way to talk about that virtue of fortitude is courage or guts. But for Lewis, he says that fortitude is defined by two elements. One, it sticks to it under pain. And on the other hand, it faces danger well. That both of those are involved in, in kind of a sense of fortitude or courage. That it sticks to it under pain and it faces danger well. And both of those elements are really important, I believe, because oftentimes I think we only have kind of courage in our minds of, well, if I'm called into a situation of great danger or great bravery, then that's when I have to exercise courage. But this other element of sticking to it under pain is a really important aspect of what courage is, of what fortitude is. And it's fortitude that preserves marriages and friendships through seasons of conflict and misunderstanding, even betrayal. The ability to stick to our commitments, to follow through in our jobs, to follow through in the spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible reading, fasting, all those, even when it's hard, even when it's not easy, even when it's not convenient, fortitude is what helps us to do those things. Opposition is an opportunity for courage to be formed in us. And opposition is an opportunity for courage because, as Lewis says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the point of its testing. Let me say that again. So Lewis says that courage is not simply just one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the point of its testing. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that if you have, let's say, for example, the, the virtue of love or faithfulness, that you only be loving or faithful to a certain point when that becomes costly unless you have fortitude, unless you have courage to continue to press in even when it costs you something. So, so think about the virtue of following the biblical sexual ethic in our lives. That, that virtue only holds up if we have fortitude, if we have courage. Because in a moment of temptation, that moment when you go back to your boyfriend or your girlfriend's home and it's starting to, to go too far physically. It's fortitude. It's courage that allows you to resist that temptation, the temptation to abandon God's design. Opposition is an opportunity for courage. And in the very next chapter, chapter 23, we've been looking at chapters 21 and 22 today, in chapter 23, Paul is still in prison, and Jesus appears to him in prison. And what do you think that Jesus tells Paul in that moment? Take a look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus' words to Paul, take courage. Take courage, Paul. 
And here's the thing. The reason that we can take courage in the face of opposition is because Jesus has gone before us and he invites us to go with him. He doesn't just tell us to take up his cross and follow him, but he himself took up the cross and invites us to follow him in that. Which means that opposition is finally an opportunity for imitation. And Luke is clearly patterning in these chapters Paul's journey to Jerusalem after Jesus' own journey to Jerusalem to die. Jesus was accused by the Jews in the temple, and so Paul is accused by Jews in the temple. Jesus was handed over to Rome, so Paul is handed over to Rome. Jesus' death was predicted multiple times before it happened, so too Paul's suffering and arrest are predicted multiple times before it happens. Jesus' disciples pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Also, Paul's friends pleaded with him, don't go to Jerusalem. Jesus exhibited steadfast determination and courage in the face of deep emotion and pain. The thought of going to Jerusalem, Paul likewise demonstrates determination and pain or in, in obedience and pain and deep emotion. Jesus says in the garden to the Father, not my will be done but yours. And Paul so clearly says the same with his actions here in this passage, not my will but your will be done. Opposition is an opportunity for imitation, an opportunity to imitate and obey our Savior Jesus. Jesus, who gave himself for us, who rose from the dead, conquering death, guaranteeing that surrender to him will always and the end lead to life and victory over death through his victory and the resurrection. Jesus' greatest moment of opposition was on the cross, and it truly proved to be his finest hour. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, would you make us, your people, the kind of people who face opposition well? Would you grant us discernment and courage? Would you allow us to surrender ourselves to you, trusting that you will bring us ultimately to life? In Jesus' name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.